the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Well, hello and welcome to Future Proof on Newstalk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, as always, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. You can text us for 30 cent 53106. And as ever, we get to all of those comments in a sort of an extended version of the show, the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's show, very excited. Um, a man who sort of inspired me to start doing this program, an extended interview with one of the best science communicators on the planet, astrophysicist and author Neil deGrasse Tyson. First, though, uh, we're joined by Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from ICRAG and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield, to go through some of the most amazing stories of this week's science news. Our first story. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Sorry for the early call. Uh, we were recently informed of a satellite breakup and uh, need to have you guys uh, start reviewing the safe haven procedure. It's uh, 9.21. Uh, we are planning on performing through block eight, which will include closing the radial hatches. Uh, the time of concern is 0600. Fergus uh, is like something from a James Bond film. Uh, Russians have been shooting up satellites in space. Yes, they have. The Cold War is back. So Russia this week, they blew up one of their own scientific satellites. And this has sparked absolute outrage in the, in the international community because when you blow something up in space, it generates a huge amount of debris and space junk. And where they blew up this satellite of theirs is in the region where the International Space Station orbits the Earth. So that means there are a huge number of projectiles that are now out there moving at high speed through space that are threatening the safety of the space station and also its crew. So this begs the question, like, why are they blowing up the satellite in the first instance? And this is because space is the new frontier of war. So the Russians were testing one of their anti-satellite missile systems. They're not the first country to have done this. But if you think about modern warfare, we are so reliant on satellites for everything, for communications, everything to do with the Internet, so that if a huge war was to, uh, to break out, one of the first things that countries would do is to target each other's communication systems. And this means that you have to have missiles that are able to be shot from the ground up into space and knock out another country's satellite. So that's what the Russians have done. They've blown up one of their one of their own. But the amount of outrage that this has generated is enormous because even even just during the course of this week, so when the International Space Station passed close to this debris cloud on, on Monday, the crew members in the International Space Station, um, inside of which they're you know you know that's that's partly owned by Russia as well, so they're yeah. they're also putting their own their own people and their own infrastructure in danger. So the crew members were told to shelter um, inside in the Soyuz capsule and the Crew Dragon spacecraft, which are attached to the International Space Station. And this is so that they could actually quickly detach if needed and come back down to Earth if, if the space station was to be damaged by fragments of this exploded satellite. So this is this potentially has enormous repercussions because the International Space Station, I think it orbits the Earth about once every 90 minutes. So it's it's passing by this huge amount of debris um, quite frequently. And remember, 
not all of this debris has to be has to be very big in order to cause damage even things as small as a fleck of paint these projectiles are moving through space at a, at a speed of kilometers per second and if they strike something solid you know the chances are that they could cause a huge amount of damage so the international community especially the international space community is is outraged by what has happened this week um everything's moving quite fast in space right but if it's all moving at the same speed um i would have thought it's it's not as much danger as long as it's going in the same direction that you know it's like things bouncing off each other as opposed to direct impact but some of these fragments are actually traveling at mind-blowing speeds and i saw a picture um on twitter of the impact that just a 1.7 gram like a tiny little pellet can cause in in a block of steel when it's going at the speed that some of these fragments are going so um hugely worrying um to have all this stuff in space but i hadn't realized that america had already done this in 2008 i didn't realize you could sneak a missile up into space because I, I, you know, obviously, I thought we we knew all of the because it's so expensive and so difficult to get cargo up into space. I thought I thought it was almost public knowledge what what weapons might be up in space, and this is total surprise to me. But maybe I'm naive. Yeah, there is an enormous amount of stuff up there. So there's about thirty thousand trackable objects um, that various countries around the world are actually tracking. So this this idea of space junk and some of it being quite large. A lot of those are trackable, but it's only a fraction of what's up there. One of the um, another Cold War sort of hangover is uh, pre-satellite. Uh, so pre the satellite age, the Americans were very worried that if the Soviets were to attack um, them with nuclear warheads, that the amount of nuclear fallout that would be on the American mainland would be so much that it would that it would actually knock out radio communications. So the Americans had this idea is that if we can't communicate via radio over the land, is there a way that we could put something up in space that would allow us to bounce radio waves off it? So what they did is they fired up millions and millions of tiny copper wires, which formed a ring around the earth and allowed them to point their radio transmitters up into space, send radio waves up, hit the shield of copper wires and be reflected back down. And it worked. It didn't work all that well, but it did work. Um, a few years later, the satellite was invented and it removed the need for this shell of copper wires, but they're still up there flying around in space and potentially wow. um, if they if they were to arrive at the wrong place in the wrong time, they could cause a lot of damage. Amazing. Uh, I hadn't heard that before. Jessamine, my second story is also a fascinating piece, uh, and it's to do with a potential vaccine for Alzheimer's. Yeah, this is an amazing story out of the universities of Leicester and getting in um, about Alzheimer's and the possibility of treating and vaccinating for it using this new antibody technique that researchers have developed. Um, Alzheimer's disease, as many of us unfortunately know, uh, is a type of dementia that affects memory, thinking, behavior, um, often in the elderly, although it can onset quite early. Um, And the kind of neurological signature of Alzheimer's disease is these buildups of plaques or kind of structures of the specific type of protein in the brain called beta amyloid protein. Um, It occurs throughout the brain, but for some reason in Alzheimer's, it starts to form these kind of plaques um, that are kind of a signature, a characteristic signature of uh, the disease. And a lot of previous efforts to treat or understand Alzheimer's would focus on destroying those plaques, right? Just get rid of them and will the brain go back to its, its former functionality? 
Um, this is really a hard to do because the plaques are, are quite sticky um, within the brain. It's almost like a toddler's fingers have just been all over your, your neural tissue. Hmm. Um, and often, even when researchers could figure out how to remove the plaques, the original neural function wasn't restored. So the problem isn't the plaques themselves, it's that they lead to this sort of neurological death within parts of the brain. Yeah. Um, but this approach is quite different in that instead of targeting the plaques themselves, it looks for these kind of precursor beta amyloid proteins that are in the wrong shape in the brain. So basically, they've been shortened um, by some process, which is still being understood. And then that's what leads to the formation of these plaques. So researchers found an antibody that basically just looks for the truncated protein still while it's floating around um, and binds to it so that it can't form the plaques that then lead to the, the neuron loss. So this uh, first study basically used it in live mice as well as testing in some um, postmortem human brain samples. Uh, and what they found in the live mice was actually both a reduction in the formation of the Alzheimer's plaques, which is great, and also a reduction in the neuron loss. Um, and they even did some like memory tests using the mice uh, that had been treated with this. Um, and they found it that it improved their spatial memory uh, deficits that would have been developed due to Alzheimer's. So um, obviously, anytime we hear about mouse studies for something in humans, it, there's still a lot of steps to go. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I find really encouraging about this is both that it worked as a vaccine in terms of preventing the onset of Alzheimer's, um, but even in mice that had already started to have some of the effects of Alzheimer's and some plaque formation, it could start to reverse that process. So to me, that's really exciting, too, because, you know, a vaccine is wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily help the people that might already be suffering from this disease. And the fact that this could be, you know, a, a, an actual treatment for it is is really exciting. Absolutely. And there's quite a lot of uh, talk about Alzheimer's at the moment, some really interesting drugs coming on the market. And, and I suppose a ray of hope for those um, who have been newly diagnosed or uh, or those who are at risk due to genetic or other factors. Um our third story has to do with something I've never heard of, um, uh, Fergus, which is a piece of so-called deep earth. What on earth is deep earth? So deep earth, uh, it has a it has a name in this particular instance, but, but we'll get to that in a second. So um, the story behind this one is that there was an ancient diamond. It was found in Botswana in the nineteen eighties, and it was it's, it's it was really, really small, uh, so less than a centimetre. It was kind of green and it had these black kind of flecks in it or specks of black in it. And so while it might, mightn't function that well on a ring, those little um, impurities, so those, those little specks of black are the, if, you, if you're a geologist, that's where the treasure actually is. Hmm. Because those little black specks have been analysed. And one of the things that geologists are trying to find out is they're trying to get a better understanding of the deep earth and in order to better understand that the best thing that they can do is actually look at materials that have been generated in the deep earth so those are the black specks inside this diamond they've been analyzed by a team of scientists from ucla and what they've discovered is that those small little black impurities are a never seen before mineral that had that only up until this point had been theorized so it's the first occurrence of this particular mineral that has ever been seen before. So it's called Dave Mauite, and it's named after a scientist called Dave Mau, and it forms in extremely high pressures and temperatures, about 500 miles below the Earth's surface. And how it gets to the surface is that it gets encased in a diamond, and the diamond here is really important because the diamonds are so strong that it can actually hold Dave Mauite at enough pressure that it stays in its original form. So that um, 
when the scientists then, when they actually broke open the diamond, the mineral they found stayed intact only for about a second. And then they saw it expand and they saw the bulge under the microscope and it turned to glass. So Dave, wow. Marit, it's really ephemeral. It's really important to understand what happens at that depth in the earth, because one of the things that they're interested in, in this particular mineral is that it's it's capable of holding little amounts of radioactive elements. And those are the elements that generate a lot of heat in the center of the earth, which also has a role for plate tectonics and generating the heat and the convective currents that happen um, underneath the earth's crust. Deep Earth is a way cooler name than Dave Marite, but the idea that this um, mineral has been dug out of a, a diamond and lasted for just a second before it turned to glass, again, sounds like something from a movie. Amazing story. Finally, uh, Jessamine, our, uh, our last story has to do with an unusual correlation between tool use and languages. That's right. And so, you know, tool use and, and language skills are basically two of the things that make us human, right? <laughs> um, things that about our brains and the way that we interact with the world around us uh, that really define humanity. Um, and in back in 2019, there was research that showed that there was actually a correlation between proficient tool use and understanding the syntax of complex sentences, um, which was very interesting. But as we know, you know, correlation, not necessarily causation. Um, and so this is an update on that research from ANSERM, a French health institute, looking at how interconnected are these skills and crucially, could they be used to rehab each other? Right? So what the researchers did was basically they used um, functional magnetic resonance imaging to look at uh, a selection of people and have them do both a motor task and a language task, um, one first and then the other with a small sort of break in between. And initially, they basically wanted to see, uh, did the same part of the brain light up um, when they did one versus the other? So could the correlation be due to the fact that they're drawing on the same neurological resources? And the answer is yes. Um, so both of these skills use the basal ganglia active in roughly the same pattern. So, you know, that makes sense. That kind of explains the original study. Um, but what's really interesting to me about this is that they then found that if you did a motor task first, waited 30 minutes, and then did a language task second, you got improved performance in the language task, presumably from having completed the motor task first. And the correlation goes the other way, too. So if you do a language task, basically looking at some sort of syntactical problem in a sentence wait 30 minutes and then do a motor task, you also got improved performance. And just really? you know, to be clear, yeah, I mean, this to me is like crazy. Yes. Because <laughs> like the, just just to explain the, the tasks a little bit more, the motor task was basically using these really small pliers to manipulate pegs into little holes. Yeah. Um, the pegs had to be the right orientation to fit into the holes. The pliers were quite small. Um, and then the, the language tasks were things like listening to a sentence that had a complex structure, like, the scientist whom the poet admires writes an article and then answering questions like, you know, the poet admires the scientist. Is that true or false? So basically making people go back through the sentences and say, OK, you know, does does the syntax of that match with what I'm being asked here or not? And to me, it just it's very surprising that these two things are correlated. But it's super interesting if you think about things like language rehabilitation, say, after a stroke, which is notoriously very hard to do. But what if you could help people rehabilitate that by using other tasks that target the same parts of the brain, like just working with pliers for a while? And it reminded me, too, of some, some research. Um, this is from an old Oliver Sacks book, but that often people that have language uh, problems after a stroke, you can get them to sing songs, even if they can't say words. <laughs> um, and so that music has also been targeted as a way to 
uh, rehabilitate things that are that are having issues after a brain injury. Wow. But these are so much more disconnected, right? Motor tasks versus syntax. Um, that to me, it's really exciting uh, what these researchers have found, and I'll be really interested to see where it goes in terms of actual, you know, practical outlooks for people suffering from these issues. Really fascinating. Um, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway and from ICRAG, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe, thanks very much. Coming up, an extended and exclusive interview with the brilliant Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is Future Brief on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, now, I'm delighted to uh, welcome our next guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, science communicator and director of the Hayden Planetarium. Uh, he's also co-author of a new book, A Brief Welcome to the Universe, a pocket-sized tour. He joins me now. You're very welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me. It's It's been a long time since we spoke. Um, I, I don't know if anyone remembers, but the, one of the first interviews I ever had on this program when I just started out as a radio broadcaster, knowing nothing about science, but really enthusiastic about it, uh, I interviewed you and your eloquence and your way with words, your ability to communicate science was a real, um, it made me think there's there's a real future in this. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> Plus, all you really need is enthusiasm for most anything to be good at it. And, and I think that's an undervalued asset. Often people think you, the prerequisite is you just have to be good at something. But if you're enthusiastic, that will transcend however good you thought you were, even if you didn't like the subject at all. So uh, I think more enthusiastic people in the world is what we need. Yeah. You can um, read the enthusiasm in this book. And so one of the things that, um, comes with do, being a science presenter um, and having done thousands of radio interviews by this stage is that I know a little bit about um, astrophysics. And so I knew some of the things in the book, but it's the way you have decided to shape and present that information that makes it so compelling. Um, but there was something I, I didn't know. And, and I, I wanted to pick pick up on you. And so, we, we can, you know, I'm talking Neil deGrasse Tyson. Let's, let's talk about some astrophysics. So you said stars will finish using uh, fusing all their thermonuclear fuel and one by one they'll blink out. And my question is, um, once the, the 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 stars burn out, does the 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 waste of that star not get pulled back into something else and start a star anew? Or why is that? Because that that matter is still there. Um, why is it changed so fundamentally that that stars cannot rekindle? Yeah, because stars don't rekindle from stars. Stars kindle or rekindle from gas clouds. And our Milky Way has gas in it. it. Might be ten. I have checked the last numbers. Ten, twenty percent of its mass in gas, and so it still has some star manufacturing ahead of itself. And whereas right. other kinds of galaxies that have these elliptical shapes, in fact, we call them elliptical galaxies, they have very little gas in them. So all of those stars will just burn out and there won't be any fresh supply to replace them. So when they burn out, it's just a stellar corpse it's right where it was. <laughs> I mean, they'll be orbiting the center of the galaxy, but there's not a, uh, in a there's not a, there aren't circumstances in which anything else will happen to that corpse. And so, yeah, there, there, there it is. And uh, that image that you, that you found in the book, I've many people have commented to me on that, at, at like how depressing that is or how sad that is, especially when I gesture with my 
thumb and index finger, and I say the stars just blink out one by one, uh, leaving a night sky void of all light at all. And, you know, just, just uh, it's, you know, night is dark, but we rely on the stars as something to guide us through the night, knowing that the sun will then rise. Well, the sun will one day burn out, as well as all the other stars in the night sky. So imagine looking up and seeing nothing at all. Uh, that's a sad future for the universe. And, you know, there's no other way to slice it. <laughs> that's just what it, that's what it is. Oh, by the way, so if you take this, this stellar corpse and merge stellar corpses, it's just one bigger corpse. It's not going to make a new star. It's like having a bonfire and then the bonfire is done and you have ash in the middle and you say, oh, let's rekindle this bonfire. Uh, you're not right. because all the fuel is, is exhausted. And so that's, uh, the fuel is the, thermonuclear fusion of light elements to heavy elements. So we, so uh, our sun and most stars in the universe are converting hydrogen into helium in their cores. And uh, when you run out of the hydrogen in your core, you're left with helium. And now the helium then, we, we use the word burn, but it's really fusion. Uh, helium goes to carbon and nitrogen right on up the periodic table of elements. And you get to these heavy elements and then there's nothing, we're done. We're done. And oh, and by the way, you can, <laughs> uh, as you know from 20th century physics, uh, the heaviest of elements can be split and you get energy from that. That's nuclear fission. Uh, that You can do that. There's some of those very heavy elements in the universe, but not enough to rekindle a whole life cycle of stars. So that that was my question. Um, that when these um, when all when these stars blow up, um, you've got all this this sort of fused material. Surely that the the weight and gravity of it all makes it very unstable, and something happens. But you're saying no. Well, so so let me let me just add a little middle detail there, uh, because you're still you don't want this to happen in the universe. So let me toss you a bone. Okay, so. Uh, I was very careful to say that when the sun exhausts the hydrogen in its core, it, then it has a core of helium, and then the helium uh, fuses to make carbon. That There are stars that will do that all the way up to iron in their core. But how about the rest of the star? The rest of the star still has hydrogen, all right? That wasn't hot enough in the rest of the star for the hydrogen to do anything. <clears throat> so it just hung out there. All right, dead weight, literally, okay, or living weight. And so when the star blows up, it scatters all of the hydrogen it did not fuse back into the galaxy, right. as well as some of the heavier elements that would not be as fertile in the new, in the new formation of a star. So the heavy elements plus all the unburned hydrogen go back into the gas clouds. That's how we got here. That's how our star system has planets at all because the universe began with just hydrogen and helium basically. And we've got carbon and nitrogen and I, we got all kinds of extra elements. Those are forged in stars scattered and then exploded, scattered that enrichment into gas clouds that would form subsequent generation stars. We were not born at the beginning of the galaxy. We were born 5 billion years ago and the galaxy was born 12 billion years ago. There's a lot of enrichment going on over that time. And so, right. so the, and this will continue with the gas clouds, of which there are many in our galaxy. 
until there's no gas left. And there you go. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about what happens in the core of a star. And I was wondering, how do we know what happens in the core of a star? Is that something um, we have to model or is it something we can measure? So both, actually. Uh, there's, there's this very outdated concept that it's not really true unless you can see it. Okay. Seeing is believing or there's a whole understanding that people have of nature where if, if it doesn't otherwise reach your senses, how could it really be true? And one of the great contributions of science to civilization is the ability to make measurements that have nothing to do with your five senses. Right? I can, I can detect magnetic fields and electromagnetic energy and, and radiation fields. I can detect things that your body can't, or by the time it does detect it, it's too late. All right. And so, so we have all these ways to see what's going on, even though your eyes cannot detect it. Okay. So here we have this star. We can measure how much energy it's generating. And we can say, and this, this is a great, I love your question because it'll It'll, it, it forces me to tell you, that forces me, it invites me to tell you how we figured this out, right? So we have this big ball uh, of gas in the sky and people are saying, well, we don't even know it's gas yet. It's just a big ball and it's burning and we know how much energy it's giving out. Total. We know how much energy earth is receiving and earth is intersecting a tiny amount of all the energy going in all directions. So you just do some fast geometry on that. You can get a total energy output of the sun. And then you ask, okay, what's the sun made of? Well, you go back 150 years, what's the highest density energy we had or knew about? It was charcoal. It was like charcoal, right? You burn charcoal, that's a high energy density. And so we said, maybe the sun is made of coal, <laughs> okay? So if the sun is made of coal and it's burning at that rate, how long would a chunk of coal that size last if it's burning at the rate we measure? We got a few million years, maybe 10 million years tops. Well, biology, biological evolution required much longer, millions of years. Geologists needed tens of millions and maybe even billions of years. And other needs that we found in astrophysics also put huge pressure on that number. And no one is saying that Earth predated the sun. That, that's an absurd assumption. The sun is a million times larger than the Earth. The Earth wasn't just dangling in space and something a million times larger showed up and decided to invite us to orbit it. All right. That's an untenable uh, suggestion. So there was a conflict until, uh, okay, uh, was it Lord Kelvin? One of the great physicists in the, between the 1800s and 1900s said, Unless there is a source of energy we have yet to discover, this is the thermodynamics of the sun. Well, in the 1880s, 1890s, Marie Curie discovers, discovers uh, you know, radioactive decay, the energy inside the atom. Oh my gosh, there's an energy source there. Let's keep studying that. Oh my gosh, you can take atoms and split them. Oh my gosh, you can take atoms and infuse them and energy gets liberated. And so, so we started accumulating new knowledge from Earth and saying, 
we can make that much energy given the composition of the star of our sun and generate energy for billions of years. That would be thermonuclear fusion in the core. Is it hot enough for that? Ooh, wait a minute. It's not hot enough to fuse hydrogen atoms. How are we going to do this? Oh my gosh. We discover quantum physics in the 1920s. Quantum physics enables tunneling through thermodynamic barriers. Oh my gosh. So the, so brick by brick or a puzzle piece by puzzle piece, we were able to completely explain every mysterious unknown thing about the sun once more and more physics became available to us. And the last bit of physics that was unknown was there was a neutrino, a, 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 an exotic particle that is hardly ever can be detected, but we know it exists and we have detected it. We built neutrino detectors and there's a certain number of neutrinos that should have been coming from the sun. We calculated that given our models for thermonuclear fusion and we were not measuring those neutrinos on earth. Uh-oh, maybe it's not fusion. Maybe we don't understand the fusion. Maybe our model for the, for the sun is false. And what we later discovered was that the neutrinos were changing their identity between being emitted by the sun's core and us detecting them. It's like someone throwing you a football and you're catching a basketball, but you have a detector set up to detect footballs, okay? And you'll say, I, we're not getting the right number of footballs here. No, no, because in fact, mid-path, it changed. And this is the decay of one type of particle to another type of particle. And we measured this in the lab. And so that's recent. That's the last 20 years or so. So we got, we're done here. We're on to other problems. Like what was around before the universe? Is there a multiverse? Um, or what is dark matter and dark energy? That's the enthusiasm I was talking oh. about. You're listening. <laughs> One of the other things in the book that I wanted to touch on um, before I talk about, you know, communicating and, uh, again, because it is something I'm really interested in, is, um, is something I didn't know that in the book, uh, it says that, um, there was a time when we had 11 planets and I'm wondering how, um, how we got from there to, to, to eight. Now I know how we got from nine to eight, Pluto being killed as well, was well covered, but, um, talk to me about this time. Um, the elements in the theory of astronomy by John Heimer's, um, this textbook had 11 planets. Yeah. What, yeah. What so it, what, what was it listening? Yeah. There? So just let me be clear. The nomenclature is something that almost necessarily has to be sort of a living organism itself because you learn more about objects, how you might want to classify them. And there are two types of sort of classification motives. One of them is you see different things and you want to find out what's the same about them and thereby classify them together. There's another where you see two things that are the same, but you look more carefully and you find out that they have differences, and now you want to classify them differently. So, uh, in fact, the English language distinguishes those two cases in a fascinating way. So you would compare, um, uh, you would compare oranges to apples, and if you do that, you say, "Well, they're both fruit, and they're both round, and they both grow on trees." So now. You, you see two things that are, you are different, but you're then exploring what's the same when I say compare one to the other. But if I mm. use the word with, I say compare 
a red delicious apple with a Macintosh apple. Now these are both apples, but now I want to see what's different between them. Okay, so we, so that, that's it's a fascinating nuance in our language. Well, the same is happening in science. So, what was a planet? Where do we get the word from? It was from ancient Greek, the ancient Greeks. Planetes. Planetes means wanderers. They looked up in the sky and they counted seven wanderers. And these are objects that move, if you wait enough, wait long enough, you'll see them move against the background stars. Okay? Do you know that the moon drifts westward its own diameter every hour? And you think it's just there with the sky, move, you know, uh, rising and setting with the stars. It has its own orbit around the Earth, thank you, all right? And you can watch that if you pay close attention. The ancients had nothing better to do at night but look up. <laughs> there was no Netflix. There was no, you know. So with few distractions, you kept very good track of things. So let's count the seven objects that move against the background stars. That would be Mercury, Venus. Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the sun, and the moon. These are the original seven wanderers, what we could say is the classical planets. And the seven days of the week are traceable to the names of those seven planets across three cultures. The um, you know, Latin, Roman, uh, also Norse, um, and but they're corresponding gods. So Thursday, Thursday, right, is a uh, Thor wielded lightning bolts. He's a powerful god. Thor corresponds with Jupiter in Roman mythology. And if you look in the Latin American, uh, I mean, the Latin languages, so so Spanish, uh, French, uh, Thursday captures Jupiter in in their reference. So, so and of course Sunday is the sun. Moon day is Monday. Okay, this sort of thing. Saturday is Saturn. All right, so seven planets. We're good. All good. So now uh, Copernicus comes along 1,500 years later and says, hmm, maybe Earth is not in the center of all motion. Maybe we should not be thinking scientifically about what's going on on the assumption that Earth is in the middle. That can, that can distort your view. Maybe the sun is in the middle. Oh my gosh, it is in the middle, as would be later confirmed by Galileo. Well, if the sun is in the middle, then Earth is not the center. We are one of the other objects. So we gain Earth as a planet. Okay? So now we go from seven planets to eight. But wait a minute. The moon goes around Earth. So we lose the moon. So that takes it back down to seven. And how about the sun? Clearly the sun is not a planet because it's not going around anybody. So we go from seven planets, we gain the earth, and we lose the sun and the moon. So now we're back down to six, okay? So we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Six planets. Now, go fast forward another couple of hundred years, and what happens? We discover more planets. Oh my gosh, in 1800, 1801, there's planets orbiting between Mars and Jupiter. And there was a big gap there, by the way. People said, there's got to be something there. That's a way bigger gap than it looks like this should be. And so we found uh, found four new planets there. Okay? Pallas, Juno, Vesta, and Ceres, all named for Roman gods, just the way the rest of the planets are named for Roman gods. Okay. 
And, well, wait a minute, this kept going. It was very exciting. New planets discovered. Then we start adding back. Got to up to 10. And then a fifth one was discovered. That's 11. And then people said, wait a minute. All of these new planets are orbiting in the same swath around the sun. And you know, they're kind of small. They're so tiny, they look like a, a point of light, like the, what stars look like. Stars are so far away, they're just points of light. They're, they're not disks like the planets are through a telescope. These are just like points of light. They're star-like. So Herschel said if they're star-like, they're asteroids. Aster, star-oid-like, star-like. They have nothing to do with stars, but through a telescope, it's just a point of light. So this new swath of objects where they were getting discovered at rapid pace, overnight, basically, dropped out of the planet count. And in so doing, having dropped out of the planet count, we lost a set of uh, uh, um, planets that for a brief period of time, everyone was excited and believed were real. And, and they're just they're just rocks orbiting the sun. All right, I left out. Sorry, we had discovered Uranus. So that w that made how many planets? Uh, seven, and then we discovered four more, and that took us up to eleven. And that's where that eleven number comes from. When we discovered a bunch more asteroids, they all dropped out of contention. And now there's hundreds of thousands, probably millions of asteroids to be discovered, most orbiting in that swath of real estate between Mars and Jupiter. So that you asked a, a brilliant question, and I'm sorry it took me so long to answer it, but that's the full reckoning of it. And for me, in modern times, you know, we, we demoted Pluto, that dwarf planet. For me, planet is no longer a useful word, especially given all it's been through. We should have different words. <laughs> Do you realize Jupiter is more bigger compared to Earth than Earth is compared to Pluto? So if we on Earth say, let's demote Pluto, Jupiterians, if they, if they had a similar streak within them, they would want to demote Earth and say there are only four planets in this solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. We're the big boys, all right? And the rest of you all are just debris. We would have no case if they made such declaration. So I just think we need a set of words to properly reckon the nuances that distinguish all the things that orbit the sun. Um, I suppose, as with many things over the history of humanity, it's, it's down to perspective. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the way you speak, because not a lot of scientists speak the way you do. And I, I thought it was fascinating to hear that um, you had um, met Carl Sagan, uh, you know, one of the great American science communicators, and that he had uh, sort of singled you out, invited you to, to meet him and, and spend a lot of time with you. And I was wondering, was Carl Sagan and his TV show Cosmos a huge influence on how you speak? Or what is it about um, your education, your upbringing or your childhood that gave you this gift for describing the universe? Because, you know, I know a lot of people out there wish that astrophysicists had more of this, uh, but scientists in general, this, this gift to be able to communicate. So a couple of points. First, I don't know if I was singled out by Carl Sagan. For all I know, he had, you know, he did that every week, uh, for all I know. Hmm. I do know that I had applied to college. He was a professor at Cornell. And my application, I had been admitted 
to Cornell by the admissions office, but I was still uh, undecided at the time. And so the admissions office sent my application to Carl Sagan, unknown to me at the time, but they were asking him, is there anything you can do to help bring him here? And that's when he invited me to Cornell, that, un, a sight unseen. I don't, you know, and, and he didn't know me from anything. Of course, I knew him from his books and this sort of thing. So I was very honored by such an invitation. Um, what I learned from him is since I'm nobody to him, yet he devoted this time out of his schedule, which was surely a busy, uh, he's surely a busy man, that I said to myself, if I am ever as remotely famous as Carl Sagan, I will make sure to devote time to students the way he has devoted to me. I committed myself to that. And I, I maintain that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect at it, but I, I think I'm pretty good at it. All right. I'd be, <laughs> I joke, I, I, I'd be on the phone, uh, Barack, you know, there's, there's a student at the door. I got to call you back. Okay. <laughs> call you back later. And, you know, so the, the, the rank and, 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 and power of whoever I'm otherwise in a conversation with comes second to my handling of students. So that's right. a, that's an, imp- but, but in terms of the, in terms of how you, yeah, I'm getting um, there. I'm getting there. How you develop this voice. Yeah. Yeah. So I was well mature and into astrophysics long before Cosmos hit the airwaves. So I would say it had no influence on me in terms of my interest in the universe or even in my modes of communication. What it did affirm for me was that there was a hunger for the things I loved. How could this be a major series unless people liked it? And, and there was a way to make them, not make them, the way to, to excite them about it. And so, so that's the that's first point. Second, what I have found separately from that, it, and Carl was also good at this, but we, the tools today are so much more refined to connect with pop culture in a way that when I am communicating, I have a, a utility belt, like a Batman utility belt, that is loaded with pop culture referencing so that when I'm speaking to you, I can pull out of that utility about all manner of methods and tools so that while I'm communicating to you, it is not just science in the abstract. It is science connected in ways that you already care about because that's the definition of pop culture. And also I've learned that humor matters. Uh, People, when they smile, they come back for more of whatever it was that made yeah. them smile. And this is the recipe for my podcast, Star Talk. My co-host mm-hmm. is a comedian. There's pop, it's, it's, a, it's a collision or rather a, 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 a merging of science, pop culture, and, and humor. So for me, Carl Sagan was, as we say in mathematics, the existence proof that you can actually do such a thing. Um, but uh, otherwise, no, I, I'm my own... I do my own thing. And people had asked me when I ended up hosting Cosmos twice since him, people said, what's it like filling his shoes? And I said to myself, I, I can't fill his shoes. If I tried, I, I might succeed, but I'll probably fail because they're his shoes. But what I do know is that I can fill my own shoes. I could do that perfectly. And if that fails then that's on me. 
it's not on me for failing to try to be somebody else. So uh, that's, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I'll also say no, you, you... that I think people wrongly over overuse and wrongly use the word gift. You said, how did you obtain your gift? A gift implies you're sitting there and someone hands it to you. It does yeah. not recognize the actual work that would go into what it is someone does. So one example I'll give, uh, I, I don't know what makes it across the pond over into Ireland, but uh, on Comedy Central, the, the cable network, we have a show called The, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And I, I was on his show. And afterwards, people said, oh, you and him have such good chemistry. Oh, my gosh, you're natural in that environment. I guess I'm going to take that as a high compliment because those people have no idea what I did before I went on my first program with him. I studied how hmm. long he speaks before he interrupts with a comedic quip. And I said, all right, if I have an idea I want to put, a, I got to parcel it in seven second groupings so that I can get the whole idea out. He can then interrupt with a comedy and then both live going forward. And there isn't dangling information that I have to recover and try to patch back together. And I look at what his wow. rhythms were and what interests him. And I study that. Then I went on the show and people said, oh, you're such a natural. <laughs> oh, it's a gift. Oh, it's <laughs> a gift. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting because I, I, I knew you prepare because I, I work with scientists and, and, and I know the ones who succeed prepare. I didn't realize you went to that level. Oh, yeah. It's preparing. The, so, two, the two levels of preparation. One is, do I know my stuff for this interview? Okay. And that's what most people think of when they say prepare. The other half of it, it's half, is do you know the interviewer? Do you know the interviewer's audience? Are you, do you have words that will work in that setting for that audience? And not all shows have the same vocabulary that matters. And this is the pop culture dimension of it. I've been on a guest on three food shows. Okay. Three, where they make food, but they they just brought in an astro. I think it was an eclipse or something, and it was a pop culture kind of sciency thing. But it's food shows. I have food vocabulary, okay, <laughs> that I used in those settings. And people say, "Oh, you're such a natural." No, no, I I really thought about it. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, before we finish up is this. Um, experts and treating um, experts with skepticism because it's something that obviously in um, in recent years this quote of yours saying uh, you know I never want you to quote me citing my authority as a scientist for you are knowing something if that's what you have to resort to I have failed as an educator and I thought that was really interesting because at the moment there are people claiming to be experts um, and, and, and getting trust um, there are people who are experts and not getting trust but we have to put faith in someone because I can't learn the astrophysics that you've learned in my lifetime to know, as you empirically know, what you know. I have to trust experts. So surely it's it's more down to choosing the right experts and then trying to understand. But we, we couldn't possibly take on the expertise of everyone. So there needs to be faith in experts, right? So that's a very important uh point that you're raising. And so I think the, the landscape is more nuanced than my quote would indicate. Uh, I still feel very strongly about that quote. And 
the, the reason why that quote works is when I'm teaching people, I teach them how things work, not things to memorize. And so I can claim with some, with some um, confidence that if I have succeeded, you will never have to reference me again. That's fine. But in times of the pandemic, for example, where none of us are, hardly any of us are, are, are in, infectious disease experts. And so, so it's, you can't use your own reasoning to reason how you might behave if you're not otherwise an expert. So that's a problem. So what does one do? Well, I think what's missing, at least in the schools, in the, in the, in the, in the educational system of the United States, we, we're taught science as information and facts rather than as a means of querying nature and as a means of inquiry. And so that's a problem because if someone gives you, gives you a fact and someone else gives you a different fact, you think you can just pick and choose, all right? And, but that's not true. And what's not, if, and I think we wouldn't be in this problem if science were instead taught as there's research. And at any given moment, there's the latest research result. But that's, it's not completely the truth until other research verifies it. Because you can have results that dangle in all manner of places. Okay. And so, 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 and the press, what the press tends to do is they run to that one research result. And the more exotic the research result is, the more attention it's going to get. Oh, and it'll say things like, uh, if this person is right, then all of our accepted wisdom is wrong. Okay, so what are the chances that thing is right? Really low, really, really low. All right, and we have to wait for other projects to then to, to see if they verify it or not. Yeah. Chances are you will have a wave of research that will not verify that one exotic result. But that's what people latch onto. It's like yeah. the one so, guy had the one paper who declared that vaccines cause autism. And then no other paper verified this. Yet people went to that. It's, it's science and he's a scientist and it's not how science works. And so if more people knew how science works, I don't think we'd be in this dilemma. So then what happens is you say... So it's not just any one expert that you happen to like. Look at the range of what's out there, okay? Look at what is behind it. The numbers matter. The statistics of, of, the, of, of how many scientific branches, how many scientific people follow something and have results that agree with it, that matters. And so... Mm -hmm. And, and, and But we don't know that it matters. We think we can just pick some, any result, because it is science published in a journal. And most science published at any moment in a journal will be shown to be wrong, or will we need to be modified. And that's the entire point of the journal, to be contested on the frontier. But as things move through, and as results get verified, it then goes into the canon of what is objectively true in the world. And... So what do you do? I, you know, I kind of like the Center for Disease Control. I like the number of scientists that participate in that and the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health. The, the, uh, these are American institutions, of course. Um, there's surely some counterparts in Ireland. There, uh, we have the National Academy of Sciences. These are, these are not singular research points. 
their collections of understandings of what is true. Also consider when before we knew enough about coronavirus, it's a brand new virus. It's brand new. We're discovering things daily. So if there is a research result that said, we, we don't think you need masks, but we're still checking on this, you go with what's latest. And then we say, no, nope, we found other results and these have been confirmed. Masks are, in fact, the most important thing. You don't say scientists don't know anything. You say, I'm glad for the scientific method that it can evolve for something as new and novel as the coronavirus. People should have been celebrating the fact that every week we had slightly more information about what's going on, how to keep people alive in hospitals. Okay, we need to do this instead of that because these results came out better than these. Where was the celebration of these discoveries? It was nowhere. Because people thought that science is a result, and if it's wrong and someone else says it's wrong, the whole enterprise gets to be thrown out, uh, 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 down, flush it down the toilet. So I'm sorry, I'm just I'm preaching to you here, but it's no, I'm just I, trying I, to say that without knowing how science works, people are not in a position to actually recognize what the emergent truths are and and what is just hogwash out there. Well, um, I, I don't know where you get your energy from, but it's always uh, brilliant hearing your enthusiasm for whatever the subject <laughs> happens to be at the time. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for joining very, us. Very happy to be back on your show. He has such an amazing uh, way with words, doesn't he? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Your comments on that, please. You can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Uh, producer Aid McKelvey joins me to go through your comments from last week. How's it going? It's going very well. Really interesting a bunch of uh, texting and lots of um, nice comments about last week's program. Uh, we were talking about... Um, racism uh, within AI and data sets, uh, data sets and how there was, you know, so questions about w where, um, where the data was really solid tends to be in white populations. And so we were talking about a paper that said, you know, actually, this, this could be a big problem. We need to look at the data. Uh, and someone said there should be separate data sets for skin types for more accuracy. I think that's kind of tricky. I think skin types um, and skin colors is is difficult because you know races don't really have a scientific basis. You can't really say at this point someone turns from being sallow to being black, right? It, and because we have mixed races and uh, and and mixed heritage, there's no such thing as being Irish genetically or being English genetic genetically. I think that would be. Uh, problematic. I think what you need is a huge amount of diversity. Would you agree, Aidan? If I yeah, you don't want to. Have I nailed that? I think so. Yeah, well done. I don't think you want to encode any racism into the workings of it. Like there's, we had a. Uh, I chatted to a guy who was. He wrote a book about it, and he was saying that about racism and how we treat it, and that, uh, and it's a it's a difficult line to walk. But he was saying like, racism is sort of bad, and people have different cultures, but. People, when it comes to race, people are racialized uh, in that they're put into, we don't want to be putting people into a bracket. We want them to be who they are and not kind of define someone as this necessarily. And if you, if you, you know, if you define people as black and as you said, there's mixed race people, I think you're just, you know, opening a bit of a can of worms there that is not necessary. Well, I, 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 I. 
I think there are different interpretations of that, but I imagine um, people who ha are identify identify people who are black and see themselves as being black and and uh, see themselves as being part of black culture. I would imagine they would probably be happy with that definition rather than want to have it taken away. I mean, I think it depends on the context, right? Um, so if that's a uh, yeah, but that know. would be like a, if it's a cultural definition, that's fine. But that's not. Um, like there's no uh, as far as the science says there's no definitive there's no genetic yeah there's yeah, no yeah. genetical racial difference so that would just be yeah. confusing a cultural matter with a scientific matter uh, uh, I, I, I would agree but that happens all the time doesn't it yeah. um we were also talking about this amazing correlation between volcanic eruption large volcanic eruptions in 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 historical geology and um, the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties. And there, there appears to be a correlation over time. Really interesting, Tom said, fascinating and surreal uh, story. Yeah, that was a Ferguson story from last week. Really, really interesting um, finding. Um, and that was from uh, Irish research in Trinity. We were also speaking to J.F. Bonifant, and he was talking about moral cars and I was going to say it at the time, but then I didn't. Um, but Martin has already done it. Martin um, or Martin uh, Conine. He says, great to see autonomous vehicles and the idea of the moral machine decisions on Irish media. Some believe the way autonomous vehicle decisions are framed as moral decisions is deeply confused. Hashtag trolley dilemma and often a distraction from more pressing issues. And that was something I started the interview with before the edit. And I'm wondering, Aiden, did it make it into the edit? Because <laughs> we had to crunch on time, but that was something I knew someone would say, this is not the biggest issue that we have in AI, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, no, no, no. That, that, yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Said? It was in the intro. I think you elaborated a little bit more in the podcast version, but yeah. and later on in the interview. But no, it was in the intro of both versions. So um, he may have come in slightly late, maybe. Yeah. Um, Catherine and Wexford said, um, Jonathan, possibly code in the random function when conflicting priorities arrive before an auto driven crash. That way, blame averted as an act of randomness. Oh, I see. So, uh, so rather than apportion blame, Catherine, you, you would suggest that a randomizer is put into the, the computer so that if it has to decide between a busload of kids and a single elderly woman, it ra randomly picks a number and and that number correlates to a decision. I mean, that's, it's one way of doing it. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Catherine also says, I would like a program about the methane reducing effects of seaweed when fed to cattle. Um, well, whole program seems like a lot, to be honest, but <laughs> we have covered it. Is, does it warrant a whole feature, do you think, Aidan? Maybe. Uh, I Thank you for your suggestion, Catherine. We don't get yeah. enough of suggestions, so maybe I shouldn't just poo-poo it off. It'll discourage other people from suggesting somewhat, maybe perhaps better ones. Yeah, I, think, I, I think we covered that's it. That's actually being unfair. It is interesting, but it, I don't know if I want to hear a whole program about methane. That's it from us. Thanks to producer Aidan McKelvey, uh, Simon Keane, Garrett Mahal, JJ Clark, Ansan, Giorgio Cordozo will be back with more Future Proofing Podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Music.